0: Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my curve-flattening friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we start a conversation about how COVID-19 has had an instantaneous and long-lasting impact on research, what we can do about it right now, and what we can be thinking about for the future as we move forward together. Along the way, we also manage to mention Elevators of Blood, Joe Exotic, Wisdom of Crowds, A Fatted Ox, Skinned Knees, Intellectual Judo, I Meant to Do That, Truck Drive and Subtlety, Apollo 13, Hitting a Changeup, Naive Optimism, Thomas Kuhn, and Losing Your Balance. We really appreciate you being with us for today's episode, and hope you find it helpful.
1: I see that you have your standard 14-year-old boy's room background for your Zoom. Now, just so I can be fully prepared, do I need to anticipate a 14-year-old boy in boxers walking behind you during
0: this episode? Uh, It's possible he will come back into the room, but I managed to get him out of the room before we recorded today, so we should be in the clear.
1: I'm still a little emotionally scarred from last time.
0: Well, if a 14-year-old boy's bedroom is not your preferred Zoom background, I could try some others. Um, Okay, okay. Here's a little test for you. I'm not sure if it's a pop culture test or a personality test, but uh, how about this one?
1: Oh, nice. Greg has moved to the Simpsons couch.
0: There you go. Good. Let's see. You ready? You ready? Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: This one is more for your edification, Greg, Uh but yes, it's the, I don't know, what do you call it? It's where they drive the Enterprise on Star Trek.
0: Oh my God, it's, it is is Star Trek. But not the classic one. Um, it is the NCC-1701-D, the next generation. This is the D. Okay, you got some learning to do there. All right, this one should be a gimme for you.
1: <laughs> the hallway from The Shining.
0: There you go. And what's coming out of that elevator? Blood.
1: <laughs> now,
0: Absolutely. putting the two
1: together, have you ever seen The Simpsons parody on The Shining? Uh-huh. <laughs> but because of copyright, it's The Shinin. <gasps> Boy, you read my thoughts. You've got The Shinin. You mean Shining. Shh, you want to get sued? And they have this scene Uh where uh, Montgomery Burns is walking down and the elevator opens and the blood comes Mm -hmm. out.
2: Hmm, that's odd.
0: Usually the blood gets off at the second floor. (laughs) But the one I think I'm going to settle on for you today. Okay. Brace yourself. All right. Here we go.
1: (laughs) It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. All right, I'm just gonna come clean and say that I recognize Joe Exotic uh-huh. from Tiger King.
0: Uh huh.
1: Now, for the rest of the hour, I am going to have to look at Joe Exotic. <laughs> this has become a really fun part of our family. At nine o'clock, we all get together and we watch one episode of The Tiger King. And if anybody, for any reason, can't join the watching, then we just Mm -hmm. don't watch because it has to be done as a family.
0: Bring the family together and keep everybody's spirits up. Yeah, I just like playing with the backgrounds here to make you smile. We could all use a few extra smiles right about now, I would say.
1: Yes. I mean, there's all the personal issues and and all the disruption, but also we're researchers. All of us are researchers in one way or another, and we just got punched in the face by the (laughs) research gods- (laughs)
0: Yeah, it didn't feel like the face, but (laughs) okay. I've spoken to so many colleagues and students and life stuff aside. And let's just say life stuff sucks for a lot of people right now. No question. If we zoom in a little bit to our corner of the world, the research world, life sucks there too, for a lot of people. It inspired me to post something that we decided we would just see some of the things that people are facing. And so we posted something on Twitter. I'll just quickly read the tweet. If I can read the tweet, I cannot read the tweet.
1: If you put half the preparation into the episode that you did in Joe Exotic... You would have had the dang tweet queued up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: this is what we tweeted. COVID-19 is affecting our research, current, and future, so we must figure out how to salvage and adapt our analyses and designs. We want to hear some of your COVID-19 research challenges. Contact us. People did. People... Tweeted some things that were going on. They DM'd us some of the challenges they're facing. They emailed us some things, I compiled quite a list. And my sense is it barely scratches the surface of things that people have going on, the ways that this has really impacted their research.
1: What's interesting is a number of the things people vocalized were things that you would think about in common sense. It's like, oh, yeah, you can't do a treatment group, you can't do a focus group, you know, things like that. But there were a lot lot of things that I lean back and I thought, oh wow, I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it feels overwhelming and it's like, oh my gosh, how do we deal with this and come out on the other side of it? But The purpose of our discussion here, I think, is more how can we anticipate what some of these issues are going to be, and are there ways that we can do things now to position ourselves better when we pop out on the other side of
0: it? Absolutely.
1: You and I are far from experts in everything that has come up in these messages. What I was thinking is this is more like a wisdom of crowds where we're drawing on the broad audience of people to identify what are issues at hand and then also just to start a conversation about this is I think you and I in the upcoming minutes can address a few things that we're more knowledgeable about but there are a lot of things that were less so that we can kind of start a conversation more broadly. In anticipation, while you were pulling up pictures of Joe Exotic <laughs> which by the way on the University of Maryland tracking system they now know that you have downloaded multiple pictures of Joe Exotic Exotic. That's the least of my problems. <laughs> that is the least. I pulled up the original Francis Galton in mm-hmm. Nature in 1907. Many people are familiar with the concept that the mean or the median of the group of individuals is more accurate than a set of experts. And what he does is tells the very well-known story now about how he obtained 800 tickets that guessed the weight of an ox at a county fair. He tallied them all, took the median, and it was within a few pounds of the actual weight. And it was far better guess than any expert guest on their own. I love this. Here's another line. This result is, I think, more creditable to the trustworthiness of a Democratic judgment than might have been expected. I think that is in the spirit of maybe what we're trying to do today. You and I are experts in guessing the weight of a fatted ox, and it turns out (laughs) we're not very good at it. But if we can pool the collected experiences and creativity of the group, maybe we can help one another get the hell out of this.
0: So we put out this particular call to try and get a sense of what some of the challenges are that people were facing. And we got, as part of this, we got a lovely voicemail.
2: Hi, Greg and Patrick. This is Debbie Haas-Vaughn at the University of Central Florida. I hope that you and your families are all doing well. My students and I really enjoy your podcast and love hearing your thoughts on topics all things quant. So appreciate your lively conversation. I do have a real question for you to consider in an upcoming podcast and I anticipate it's one that you've already considered in the midst of this pandemic. What are your thoughts on design and or analytic tools that researchers may want to consider if they find themselves in a situation where data collection has abruptly and prematurely paused? I'm particularly thinking of researchers who are in the middle of intervention and or longitudinal studies where the data collection has completely ceased at this point. So any thoughts on creative or even not so creative approaches to dealing with that are appreciated. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful week. Uh,
0: I really appreciate Debbie leaving us that message. And she sort of laid out some goals and hopes and dreams for this particular episode. And let's work toward that. But before we get into that kind of stuff, I would just like to acknowledge that, What's going on in everybody's life right now is just plain hard. The context in which we have to function as researchers is really, really difficult because there's so much going on in our lives before we even get to that particular research, right?
1: Yeah, you have to have the psychological bandwidth where research is even important. Yeah, If we're all dealing with family, extended family, elderly parents, young kids— I'm working with a buddy of mine here in the School of Education who has a two-year-old daughter who last week was bouncing on the couch, fell off, and broke her leg, and now has a two-year-old daughter in a full leg cast while quarantined inside. And we have weekly research meetings, and he is still all in it, but it's Mm -hmm. hard to carve out that psychological space.
0: Oh my gosh, of course. And a lot of parents are now having to be teachers at home because the school systems are adapting slowly, in some cases, if at all. So we are teachers, we are caretakers, and somewhere in all of this, we have to find the, as you said, the bandwidth, the psychological energy, the physical strength to approach this research stuff.
1: You know what, and this is just a two-bit opinion of mine, but from my own upbringing even though there are really awful things happening in the world that we're all dealing with, our research is still important. And it's okay to worry about that. And it's okay to wake up early in the morning and to fret about it. Is A lot of times I would be a kid in skin and knee and be told children are dying in somewhere. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, no, I know. I know they are. But my knee still hurts. Mm -hmm. And it's just that notion that this is really important and it's important to us and it's important that we as a field keep moving forward and get through this and pop out the other side. So it's almost like I'm giving myself permission to worry about my research projects even though there are other bigger things happening in the world at the same time it doesn't mean I worry about those things any less but it's okay that we're really overwhelmed and frustrated and anxious about this yeah
0: so given the context of everything else that's going on we are going to focus on the skinned knees a little bit we are going to acknowledge that they hurt and see what we can do about them since that's the space that, that we live in People are having a lot of stuff going on in their research lives that they really want to talk about, share about, try to help solve. And there's some things that we are just not going to be able to do a damn thing about. (laughs) So many of these things came across our feed. For example, I cannot help the fact that someone has secure data in a locked room on their campus that they can't get access to. But oh my gosh, how awful, how frustrating. It's like you have the data, but you can't get to the data. So, I mean, I know a guy who knows a guy who could help with that problem. (laughs) (laughs) Are we talking
1: about my brother again? Yeah. (laughs) Everything is shut down for face-to-face stuff. So any school-based, any health-based, any hospital-based, any treatment provision that's a face-to-face. One person talked about, they were going to run face-to-face focus groups for pilot data to develop measurement. Those are done. We can't observe teachers. We can't observe parents. One person noticed that they were collecting data via cell phones, but it has to be done on a hard wire because of data security. You need the phone, plug it in to download the data, and of course you can't do that. On my side of the street in psychology, the entire intro psych subject pool is gone. Where that directly hits are grad students. Because you have $1.50 in your research budget, subject pool is an excellent way of doing that. All of that is stopped. Some countries are shutting down their enumerators for things like Mechanical Turk. And so a lot of that crowdsourcing are not available anymore.
0: And even just the students that you have in your lab, they're trained to do certain things. And the longer they are out of that process of whatever it is you're having them do the more likely it is that you're going to have to retrain them, not necessarily from the ground up, but pretty close. Because otherwise, when you are back in the rhythm of research, and I will say at some point we will be back in the rhythm of research, you are going to have to deal with the retraining of people. You're going to have to deal with reestablishing relationships with schools or school districts or whatever it is you do. There's so much that is set back that will have to be dealt with, again, very little of which we're able to do a darn thing about except ache with you over that.
1: I have ever since I was even a little kid, I hate to be surprised. I don't like to be surprised myself and I don't like to surprise other people. Sometimes even if I'm going to meet with somebody and it's a difficult conversation, I will email them and say, this is what I'd like to talk to you about so that they're not ambushed in the meeting. And in that spirit, I think that we should work very, very hard to not be surprised about what's going to unfold over the next 12 and 18 and 24 months. There are going to be some very long-lasting changes to the very way that we do research. We'll talk a little bit later about the availability or lack thereof of grant funding, of what is an appropriate way to gather data face-to-face in a safe way. I think I, like a lot of people, were waiting for life to get back to normal Mm -hmm. And I am more and more appreciating that there's going to be a new normal that's going to last for a long time. One of the things that I'd really like to hammer home and explore with you, Greg, to see what your opinion is on some of this stuff, I feel like we are going to need to change the way we think about our research, to change the way we think about our questions and how we're going to evaluate those And to get out ahead of this, because this is not just waiting until July when things go back to normal. Totally. They are not.
0: Absolutely right. A part of what we need to do is, as I said before, salvage and repair, right? Trying to see what we can do with what we have currently, but also planning for the future. How are we going to do things differently? And, you know, I'm always reminded of, this is going to be a silly little analogy, but my grandparents and even my dad no matter how much or how little food was left at the end of a meal, that got wrapped up in some foil and put in the freezer or put in the fridge because those are people who went through something, and once they lived through the Depression and what followed the Depression, they always planned for something that could happen because they knew it had already happened. So we don't know what's coming in the future. I don't say that in gloom and doom. I say that that... We're going to have to design things differently. We're going to have to think about this differently. And maybe part of what you and I can explore is how to be more belt and suspenders kinds of people as we move forward with our research. So we we have our plan B's built into the things that we're doing.
1: Exactly. And I see it as almost an intellectual judo move. You have 20 years of experience in judo and you <laughs> know more than anybody listening almost that you have a mass coming toward you and you never meet it head on. You re-channel it to your end. You use the force and mass that's coming at you to achieve your goal. And I did a year on sabbatical and judo and the main thing I learned is you don't want anybody to grab you. Because anytime somebody grabbed me, I knew I was going for a trip. That was after a year of intense judo training. The main thing I learned is just turn around and run. Uh,
0: excuse me, sir. Could you back up so I could kick you?
1: Yeah, no. Um. <laughs> well, you and I, early on when we met, we were talking about our ideal fighting distance. And you kept annoying me because you kept getting within like three feet of me. And I was like, dude, back up. I can't kick you if you don't back up. (laughs) If I have to fight you, I've got Mm -hmm. one good (laughs) kick in me. I've got one. And Uh if I use that well, I'm going to be able to walk away. If not, Mm -hmm. I'm going for a trip. That's all I know. (laughs) But the point is, is we have this juggernaut coming at us. And we can channel that in a way if we have a plan, and anticipation, and if we have a goal as to if I move this force to my left, what am I going to do with it as it goes by? In a judo fight, it's not just moving it to your side because then it just becomes... You're dancing around the ring trying to avoid the person Is you're moving it to the side to meet a goal, put an end to the person coming at you. Mm -hmm. I'm viewing the discussion as two parts. One is how do we mitigate the issues that we're facing right now? What are ways that we can do to get little bits of data, to do remote collection, to collaborate? There are ways to mitigate it. I think the more exciting conversation is how can we channel that force in a way that we're in more control of it. How do we channel this so that we rethink how we collect data? We rethink the kind of questions that we're asking. And I'd really like to talk about some of that. We have a joke in our family where somebody would spill water or fall off a chair or something when the girls were young and they'd pop up and say, I meant to do that. Mm -hmm. It's like just an old family thing, no matter what. I would walk into a closed door, and it's like, yeah, I meant to do that. Once when one of my daughters was three or four, she did an end over at the top of the stairs and just did like a fall all the way to the bottom. (laughs) This was like a gone-with-the-wind trip down Uh the stairs. (laughs) And... By the grace of God, she landed on her feet, standing up at the bottom, and uh-huh. she turned and looked at me with this pained face saying, I did not mean to do that.
0: <laughs> so maybe
1: cute. there's our organization for the show is what okay. are things that we meant
0: to do and mm-hmm. what are things that we did not mean to do? <laughs> but landed on our feet anyway. All right, well, certainly we have people who are in the middle of longitudinal data. Let's say they've been gathering data for a couple of time points and now their sequence is in jeopardy. Do you have any initial reactions to that scenario?
1: Maybe we could keep track of terms to keep in mind for all of us as we're dealing with things that we're dealing with. And two that I have are creatively and proactively, right? Getting mm-hmm. out ahead of it. So thinking creatively and proactively about how might we be able to obtain Even a subset of measures that would allow us to invoke these plan missing designs later when we're starting to return to some degree of normality.
0: Of the episodes that we have done previously, there are three that really have the most direct bearing on some of the strategies that we can invoke here. Um, The missing data one is one of them. More to the point is the planned missing data one that came not too long after that. And then we have the integrative data analysis. So if someone said, I need to really shore up my skill set in preparation for what I need to do in salvage mode for my current studies and maybe where I need to be thinking for future studies, those are the places where I would direct people. So to get more specific... Imagine we have someone who is currently in the middle of a longitudinal design. They are gathering data every three months from some kids. Well, now here they are going, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to gather data at that particular time point. How do I deal with that? We might assume that that person is still going to be able to gather data the way that they had previously gathered data, which might not always be the case for some people what do they do and you always use this analogy of or this metaphor of, of nailing things down at different time points or across mm-hmm. different measures the person may still have some flexibility in terms of gathering Extra time points, if that's helpful to try to, you know, depending on what you're trying to measure when. If right now, for some people, this is a transition period, if you need to gather more data once you are back online, and I mean online in terms of the research, not in terms of the mode of data gathering, there might be some flexibility in terms of the design itself.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think almost without exception, obviously there's some situation out there where this wouldn't apply, but almost without exception, any data is better than no data. And Mm -hmm. so thinking about any ways that you can reach out to your sample identify what are the core constructs that you're assessing. All of us assess a myriad of things, but we can also all identify what's really near and dear to the heart of the study and the hypotheses. Identify what those constructs are. Even if you can't give 20 or 40 or 60 items, give a subset of items. There mm-hmm. are analytic methods that we can use to stitch these together Anything is better than nothing. You know what worries me a little related to this? And it goes back to, we've talked on prior episodes about the importance of both internal and external validity. I think those are both threatened right now in this time of the pandemic. The external validity thing that I'm worried about is I think about one of my daughters who were in Chapel Hill. They're in the Chapel Hill public school system. It is a prototypical college town But there's heterogeneity in socioeconomic status. And one of my daughter's closest friends lives in a trailer on the edge of town. And the bottom line is that girl does not have access to the technology that the other kids in the high school do. And so if you think about, well, we'll we'll do a Zoom interview or we'll push a Qualtrics. Those are all great. I'm not arguing against that at all. But we also have to pay incredibly close attention to within our sample, who are we able to reach? And are we systematically omitting a subset of our sample because of this technology divide that very, very much exists in this country right now?
0: I think what you're pointing to is part of a broader solution strategy, but also a problem strategy. So let's imagine someone had been gathering data in person and you are now exploring switching to how you're gathering data. Maybe you're switching to an online survey or something like that. You are trying to track the development of something, trying to track the change of something. And if you change how you measure that something, then you are introducing validity challenges right then and there. So if I were advising somebody who came to my office and said, oh, we've gathered data up to this point, and this is the way we have gathered data, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to gather data in that manner for some time. If they had the option of switching to something online, let's just imagine that that's relevant, that they had been doing some observational measures, and they are going to switch to more survey measures. Okay, that's not impossible. What I might encourage someone to do is right now, if they have very, very recently done their observational measures, administer whatever these new online measures are to those people as well right now, as close to this time point as possible. Whenever we are changing things, we need to find a way to anchor them together. We need to find a way to get them to communicate with each other. Because now if you go forward on whatever the new time schedule is, but you're not able to do, let's say, that observational measure, you can only do this other measure, you now at least have a way to know how those things can link together. And you might, I only say might, might have salvaged the ability to try to understand about change, about that trajectory, And the fact that you have at least one time point where those things are measured simultaneously allows you to know what is essentially the good information in this other way of measuring stuff. We can
1: leverage these things for multiple reporters, multiple methods. So there's a thing that goes way back to the 50s, MTMM. Uh, Mm -hmm. matrices, multi-trait, multi-method. If we change during the next six months where we're not able to do face-to-face, maybe we were using teacher report Well, we want to think about parent report. There are models that exist that to varying degrees, right? A common theme across all our episodes is statistics is not magic. You don't Mm -hmm. get something for nothing. you got to pay the reaper. It's not like we can just do an MTMM and somehow it's as if nothing had changed. That's absolutely not true. But is it better than not having anything at all? And I would say a definitive yes to that. What should be a guiding principle is what data can we collect now that Mm -hmm. we could use later to help us protect this internal and external validity? So that's, I think, a big theme here asking questions that are pandemic-related. So this is another thing that occurs to me. A lot of what we study—now, not everything. Again, we're a very heterogeneous group. But a lot of what we study, I personally feel like— is going to be structurally changed as a function of what we're going through right now. So if you Mm -hmm. think about studies of education, of learning, if you think about family influences, parenting influences, uh, studying psychopathology, depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol use in teens, there are countless examples. It's not just oh, wow, we can't do an in-person and so now we're going to do a Qualtrics so we can get to back to an in-person. I think this is changing the very fabric of much of what we study, which in a very real way is an exciting thing, right? Is It's like, okay, what, how can we use this to learn more about human behavior, human emotion learning, things like that? But it should be a giant hot poker in the butt to think about what data can I be collecting now to help me model and understand those structural changes in the upcoming months and years. So think about what is your question? What is it that's near and dear to your heart? What pandemic-related influences may impact that in some way or another? And how can you get an empirical assessment of that now, even if it's not ideal? A Qualtrics five-item scale, how do we get numerical data now that we can have in our back pocket when a year from now you can say, well, we were studying these parenting processes over time, and during the summer of 2020, we added these measures of the extent to which the quarantine was causing stress in the home, causing parental discord, causing whatever— because you have empirical data that thing you can build into your models to understand these processes when we pop out
0: of this. I think that is the second take-home message that we have really so far. One is a way to gather measures that are intending to get at the same construct in substitute of what you had previously, ideally with some knitting time periods where you can have both of those things together so you can get a sense of uh, how they anchor and that you continue in something longitudinally. And then the point that you just made, which is awesome, that is to gather these other measures of Essentially, dosage-related things, the extent to which people are exposed to adversity under these times in ways that you think are relevant to your outcome. We often talk about the effectiveness of treatments as an example, as a, "Eh, the treatment was effective, or oh, the treatment wasn't effective. But it's really much more subtle than that. And frankly, overall, we should probably be doing analyses that are more sensitive to individual differences in responsiveness to treatments anyway. And what you are measuring, I think, is spot on. What are these other variables where we can try to understand? Because things have happened right now. To say in the end, oh, the treatment didn't work, or oh, the treatment was less effective than we thought, is really pretty lame from an inferential standpoint, and we can do so much better than that. We can try to get a sense of for whom the treatments did work, and what were the contextual variables that helped to understand why, and for whom did the treatment function differently. So I think you are spot on with that recommendation, and it requires creativity of thought right now. What can we do right now to gather things that we think are relevant to try to salvage the information that we will be gathering over the time periods to come?
1: There's a salvage component, but there's also a, I meant to I-meant-to-do-that component. Mm-hmm. The salvage is very, very real, right? We have this existing study before. It's in the field. How can we do the best job possible to preserve what we were doing before? But at the same time, how can we leverage this in a way to ask a new and novel question associated with the pandemic that helps us better understand these complex underlying processes? You and I both are a strong advocate for interactions, right? As mm-hmm. I think it's a fool's errand to say, is the treatment effective, yes or no? Mm-hmm. The question is, for what type of person, in what type of setting, when facing what type of challenges, is the treatment effective? And mm-hmm. any of those individual difference variables that we can gather now, I think, are absolutely critical.
0: One of the things that changed how I think about planning for studies previously and it was really more of a mechanical thing. It had to do with auxiliary variables in missing data design. We we'll think about the times when I was stuck with missing data on the back end and trying to tell myself a tale that made me think, oh, yeah, that's missing at random, because I needed it to be missing at random to do the analyses I'm going to do. <laughs> and then thinking about the mechanisms that would have led to the missing data And then wishing I had information about that. And so one of the things that helped me as I work with people who do longitudinal data is thinking about what are those additional variables that you don't really have theories around, but you think might be really key in understanding and accommodating missing data. What we're going through right now is a growth opportunity for me in this way. What are other things that we can gather that might not have some original theoretical interest in them, but that could influence the quality of the information that we're getting or the nature of the outcomes that we're trying to measure. So for me, there's this other stream of information that we should be dialing into, really doing the hard thinking about what that is in the context of our populations, our outcomes, circumstances where things are being measured, and then try to model that for the sake of getting out cleaner inference around the things we originally cared about, and for the sake of understanding the impact of the things that we're going through.
1: That's exactly right. One of the draws for me that pulled me into all the quantitative methodology was studying individual variability and change over time. So I've talked on earlier episodes as I was in a under Lori Chasson's guidance studying the intergenerational transmission of parental alcoholism to Mm -hmm. their children as the children navigated late childhood adolescence into young adulthood. And what fascinated me then and continues to fascinate me now is we have some observed change in behavior over time. So let's just think about a trajectory of substance use. Well, there is some developmental normative trajectory of experimentation, pushing limits. So you get this thing kind of going on its own. But then for some kids, there are additional causal underlying processes that are pushing this trajectory up or down. Maybe you have an alcoholic parent. Maybe your parents go through an acrimonious divorce. Maybe Mm -hmm. you get a good teacher and mentor in your life, right? So it's kind of this cage match that's happening over time. Mm -hmm. And then you do a preventive intervention. And so you try to deflect that trajectory by giving the kids coping skills, training, and stress response dampening. And now this pandemic is another causal element of this as all of our kids and all of our parents and everything that we study is traveling through time. Now there's a new set of causal influences on these behaviors and emotions and cognitive processes as they unfold over time. And we have an opportunity Mm -hmm. to better understand that. So it gets back to that get measures now that are going to allow us to model that in a meaningful
0: way later. This idea of getting measures also applies to when you have people who are being exposed to treatments right now. And I I mention this specifically because Certainly there are people who reached out to us who are doing longitudinal studies where they're really just focusing on the development of certain phenomena over time. But you also have people who are doing RCTs where they have done a pretest, and then they have people who are receiving whatever the treatment is and now they can't get to that post-test. Well, they're A variety of things that you can think about in that situation because it sounds like a total non-starter. In fact, if you are able to measure people later on the post-test measure, I will say sometimes, in fact, measuring people later is better. Because we often do these studies where we have a post-test that's kind of close to the pre-test and maybe you're even lucky if you find something of the magnitude and you want to know something about the long-term effect ultimately anyway. So sometimes being able to measure your outcome later is not an awful thing. Of course other things have crept into this now right? And so getting the other measures as, as you talk about are very, very relevant. Some of the treatments to which people are exposed are not just sort of a one and done, but they might be going through a series of, let's say, counseling sessions, just as an example. And if we know how much of the treatment people got through before it had to terminate due to the situation that we're in, now we have some sort of dosage measure. Not dosage of exposure with respect to the pandemic, but how much exposure they've received to this particular treatment. Now we just have a different type of design and we can try to understand about the range of effectiveness that that our treatment can have as a function of people's levels of exposure. So there's the potential to get information that we hadn't necessarily planned before out of this. Some of this can wind up being salvaged and some of it can't, right? Some of these things we will not be able to get information out because the kids will be out of the window, uh, developmental window that you're interested in. They will have moved on to the next school or whatever. There are things that will be lost for sure, but there's still a lot of stuff here that we can can try to salvage. So a couple of thoughts come to mind on that. First, I really
1: like the notion of getting out in front of this and identifying what are things that we just can't salvage. There are certain things that are just gone. We can't do it. A window is gone. Part of the design is gone. And it falls firmly under the... Yeah, that sucks. Mm -hmm. And being able to identify what that is in part of your study, I think is beneficial. Because what you could potentially do is if there's some aspect of it that's gone, there's a window that you had to put the RCT final sessions in place. You didn't do it. And you just say, all right, that one is a loss. We got to walk away from that. Can you then target limited resources to things that are not a loss? or that you could spin into a new research question. You have the sample, you have the subjects, you're out in the field before this happened. Being able to separate what can we do something about and what can we not do something about is important. I do think that there's significant potential benefits to even if you can't obtain measures from your sample, of trying to retain your sample through this difficult time. Is there a way that you can reach out to the sample, contact them via Zoom, contact them via email, somehow keep them in the study? Because if in three or four or five months, we're able to put them back into a scanner, we Mm -hmm. need to have them in the study and still have psychological buy-in to what we're doing. There are a lot of people who can't do anything about what we're talking about. They're doing bioassays or they're doing observations in the classrooms or they're putting kids in scanners. And it's like, yeah, I can't do a Qualtrics 10-item questionnaire. All right, that's fine. You can't do that. But you can continue to stay in close contact with your sample. Keep them part of the study so Mm -hmm. that when we are able to go back to some of the things that we were doing two months ago... You have that sample and you haven't lost them or lost an important subset of them that is going to limit the generalizability of your findings.
0: If I may bring a little bit of gloom and doom with a ray of sunshine at the the end to follow. Okay. Even if you can get back to doing the study that you are going to do, if that study depends on external funding, things may change. So even if it's the case that, yep, I still have access to all those people, yep, I can still administer all of those measures, you may no longer have the resources to do it.
1: Can I interrupt you and tell you how you're wrong on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you may not have the resources to (laughs) do it? (laughs) Okay. You will not have the resources to do it. And Mm -hmm. I'm not being doom and gloom either because on my yellow sticky, I have some exit points where you and I are going to talk about how good can come from this. But in the spirit of getting out ahead of things, I think Mm -hmm. you just simply have to expect that budgets are going to be drastically cut. I worry that studies are going to be canceled. They're going to claw back years of funding. I think all of us, are going to have to reevaluate how we're going to do our research project with drastically less
0: funding. You're right. I was softening the blow a little bit to ease in, but you, in your typical lack of subtlety, just <laughs> just drove a truck right through it. Thank- <laughs> You're thanks, welcome. Man. I need you to be that guy for me. Um, I'm afraid that's quite true. If I look at the history of funding from NIH, just as an example, they cut budgets routinely. Right, budgets change from year to year, budgets change from administration to administration, and it is the case that you could be funded by NIH, and in the middle of your study, you are about to start year three, you can get a notification from NIH that says, yeah, we're going to cut your budget 30%. And you think, what the heck? What? I thought we... (laughs) hey man, I thought we were cool. I thought we had an agreement here. But in fact, the budgets do change and you have to figure out ways to try to deal with that. I think that scenario is a for sure and maybe that's one of the better scenarios. I would not at all be surprised as you and your truck drove through, I would not be surprised if funding agencies come back to people and say, we're sorry, we've had to go through and do triage of all the studies that we are currently funding and you were not above the priority line. And there's not much you can do in that circumstances, except maybe try to find some alternate funding, whether it's internal or or other sources. The less drastic scenario is one closer to what I described, and that is where you will have a dramatic reduction in your funding. And then you are really in scramble mode, right? You say, well, gosh, I've got all these people, but I don't have the resources to be able to assess them. And that's where I think you're going to have to be clever in different ways. And it might mean that you are clever with different methods that you administer to all of your subjects that you retain, but you're not doing as much, you're not able to remunerate them, or you simply can't afford to go out and interface with all of those subjects. And then you have to be clever in terms of design. And it's a funny thing because you already laid out your design. You laid out your design when you proposed it, when you sought funding for it. And now here you are having to cobble together some design while you're halfway through. And this is a version of a planned missing design. One of my students and I refer to this as a post hoc planned missingness design, which is sort of what it is, right?
1: It's an, I meant to do that. (laughs) That's right. right. You walk into a closed door and Uh you meant to do that. That's Uh what this is.
0: Totally, totally meant to do that. It means then that you have to try to figure out the different scenarios for what you can anticipate would happen and where you need to put your resources. So there might be certain things that you are planning to assess, but you might say, you know what, I can't do that one, that's gonna cost a lot. Or I can't do that one because that effect will be more subtle and require more people to be able to pick up on that. All of the things that you do when you are looking at planned missing designs that you are planning from the start, you can start to invoke those mid-study and say, all right, well, I have data now for these first couple of time points. How might things play out from here? And how many subjects do I need to get the things that I consider to be a priority from here? I think that that's an area that people really Should start digging into a little bit. It's not a maybe, it's a gonna, I'm afraid.
1: Exactly. And it goes back to proactive creativity. In (laughs) your mind's eye, assume that you're going to have a drastic budget cut in Mm -hmm. six or 12 months, whenever the timing might be. Assume that's going to happen and start making plans now in anticipation of that. Mm -hmm. Don't wring your hands and say, oh, I hope it doesn't happen. And then if it does happen, say, okay, we're going to have a research group meeting to figure out what we're going to do about it. Screw that. Have the meeting now. Get in Mm -hmm. your head That you're going to have a 50% reduction in the upcoming year and plan now about what that means, how you're going to handle it, and how you're going to try to mitigate the effects of that.
0: You really do need to play out the different scenarios for, for cuts and what you're going to be able to get from things, no question. And it is hard. Right. We plan these studies and we put our heart and soul into them. We bring every ounce of content knowledge and design knowledge into this. We put every every one of our best feet forward when we start one of these studies. You're in a different mode now. Right. You are in a version of salvage mode. And the good news is there are ways to get good stuff out of what you have. Right. It is not running around freaking out. There's a little bit of that. And that's sort of normal. But there are things we can do with the skills that exist out there where you can Apollo 13 this thing and try and find ways to pull it together with the pieces that you have. And you yourself don't necessarily have all of those pieces. But the good news is that there are people in our larger research community who you can bring into the conversations where you can say, "Okay, I don't know a lot about this plan missing this thing or I don't know a lot about this type of design. But we're going to have to start thinking creatively here and bring new people into these conversations as you try to explore what the possibilities are for things as you move forward under the current circumstances. And then later, when you think about planning for other studies as well.
1: Maybe this is where we can start turning the ship to some of the more positives. Going back to what you just said, because you don't have to do this on your own, is this Mm -hmm. is part of that wisdom of crowds, right? Is We are surrounded by smart, creative, dedicated people. And you can start thinking creatively about it. So, for example, say you're running a shop, you know, your research shop, and there's somebody else in some other part of the country doing a similar kind of project. Mm -hmm. Could you coordinate with them in some way where you do a coordinated data collection? So Scott Hofer is one of my favorite people. He's up at University of Victoria, and he's done a lot of work on this coordinated data collection where separate labs are doing their own thing, but they have shared measures, shared sampling, lots of executive control from above and organizing stuff. Well, say I've got a study I'm doing, you've got a study that you're doing. Maybe we're not friends. Maybe we just kind of know each other from across a room, but to say, okay, look, we're both going to take a 50% hit in our budgets, let's think about how we could coordinate how we're going to reduce our projects so that we can jointly do the best job that we can. So think creatively about collaboration and collegiality. Think about changing modalities, right? Is we're not in the same world we were six months ago. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear, oh, but that's not the best way that we would do it. Yeah, too bad. Tough crap. That's Mm -hmm. what we're dealing with. And so what about remote data collection via smartphones? All right, treatment provision over Zoom. How do you move a treatment onto a video platform? How do we work Mm -hmm. with what we've got? I had a brief foray in baseball and it was on my list of things that I love doing, but was just had no skills whatsoever. And the old adage with baseball is you swing at what they pitch. You're Mm -hmm. standing at the plate and you have to deal with what's coming at you. And what's funny is, is I actually did pretty well in baseball until kids got old enough to start throwing different kinds of pitches, Mm -hmm. you know, where there was a (laughs) movement and, you know, change up speed and stuff. And I just, I quit. I quit that season Uh, because I I couldn't pick up a pitch as it came to me. But we're being pitch after pitch after pitch, and we have to react Mm -hmm. and swing at what comes at us. I actually get kind of excited. Can I move into my naive optimism phase?
0: Uh Yeah, okay. Try it out. It's, I'm not accustomed to that, but go ahead.
1: Well, it's yeah. in the spirit of we're all trying yeah, new good things. Good for you. And good so you. I'm going to try to model naive optimism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have long believed on a personal level that change is good. I like when things are switched up. I don't know how your department is run, but we have a department manager and they're really who's in charge. The chair pretty much works in service to the department manager and mm-hmm. everything three or four years, the department manager moves on and we get a new one. And every three or four years, everybody is like, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to open up Monday morning. You know, this is is going to be horrible, horrible. And then we get a really talented, enthusiastic new department manager and life just keeps going on. And so I have always been a big fan of the good that can come from change. You have heard me whine before. Sometimes the recorder has been running and sometimes not. But I sometimes feel like, and I'm just saying only sometimes, that parts of our research is formulaic. We do what our advisors did. Our advisors did what their advisors did. You open up a flagship journal and it's like, yeah, no, I've seen this design before. I've seen these measures before. Yeah, this is how we're supposed to do research. One of my favorite books in the world is Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he talks about (laughs) this from a very different perspective of paradigm shifts (laughs) and that there's some new paradigm and... You start doing studies in it. His is all based in the, the physical sciences, but there then starts to become an accumulation of aberrant findings that don't fit into the theory, and there's this pressure, and then there's a sudden shift where you move classical Newtonian mechanics where you're forced to move to relativity, and that's that paradigm shift. It's a very different situation, and we're not facing what Kuhn described, but I do think that we're facing a paradigm shift due to the pandemic and the situation that we are now. We have to rethink how we do our science. And part of us can wring our hands and lament that that's not how we used to do it. But I think that's also part of the exciting aspect Mm -hmm. of it. How do we think about new ways of casting questions? How do we think about new ways of obtaining numerical measures and models and doing interventions and causally influencing behaviors and emotions? And how do we think about novel data collection that from the outset are combined with existing resources? And so there is part of me that is excited about Mm -hmm. what we're facing because it's going to force us to do our job differently than we have done in the past. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Not only differently, but more collaboratively. I think there's just no way around that. And I consider that a strength. I've been keeping track of sort of a lot of the areas for people to be thinking about and places where they might want to go learn a little bit more as they are in cleanup mode right now and thinking ahead mode. And I have a list that I can just sort of use to summarize things if that's okay.
1: Okay. Can you summarize your list in 90
0: seconds? Uh, go. No. Damn it. Uh. All right. So I mentioned, no, I'm not going to do this, Patrick. I'm not going to play by your game. You know what? It's not the Hancock toxic masculinity scale. It's the current toxic masculinity scale. Don't you? All right. I this just is not how that. Joe
1: Exotic would respond. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh-huh. <laughs> your clock is um, running, dude. You burned like a third of your time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We mentioned a number of different topics. We mentioned plan missing data. We mentioned missing data. You said something about switching modalities. I'm going to say not quite. I'm going to say planning to gather multiple modalities because you don't know which one's going to go down and you might have a primary modality, but you should have a plan B and a plan C modality that you are spot gathering at different points in time because you don't know if some of your more expensive ones are going to go down. I don't think it's just about switching. I think it's about trying to plan multiple modalities. I think your point about collaborating and coordinating with other researchers is absolutely key. I don't think it's just as a reactive thing. I think it is a proactive thing that you figure out how you can be doing studies with other people from the start. In the end, the information that you all bring to the table, especially if things happen in different sites or things happen collectively, the strength of what you have together will almost certainly be better than what you're trying to cobble together yourself. So I think planning that. I think moving grand longitudinal designs to cohort sequential types of designs. I think it's really important. And they're not just, oh my gosh, you know, I can I can save money. It's as we prepare for a world where things are more uncertain, I think it's just smart to design things in these other kinds of ways. Um, I mentioned earlier about gathering extra contextual variables. I think that's going to be critical from here on out is always gathering these contextual elements that we think could have a potential bearing on stuff. And that's related to what we're going through now. But that's also part of the insurance policy that we layer on to what we do in the future. I think you have to play a little bit of a mind game when you're designing studies that span time. I think you have to imagine as you design that study, what happens if something happened at this time point? What happens if something happened at this time point? I think that that will just have to be built into our planning And of course, we plan for missing data now, and and that's pretty routine. But I think we have to plan to what would we be able to get if the study terminated here, or what would we be able to get if we had a budget cut? I think we have to play out these different scenarios. And ultimately, we're going to have to be able to articulate those as part of our planning. So all of these things come together, I think, in this world that we're entering into and that we're feeling out, but that we will absolutely be able to navigate with skill set that we have and skill sets that will evolve as part of this new research.
1: I live my life on yellow stickies. I'm going to do 60 seconds on what I've jotted on my yellow sticky as we've been talking for the last hour. Don't Mm -hmm. panic. We're going to get on the other side of this as a group. Be creative, be proactive. Do not get in the mindset that you're going to wait to return to normal because there's not going to be a normal to return to. We have a new reality that we have an opportunity to get out in front of. Do everything you can to preserve your sample. Even if you can't collect data, stay in touch with people, reach out. Make sure that when we come out in the new normal that you've curated that. Obtain any measures that you can that's reasonable, that's possible, because any data is better than no data. Have measures that are related to your core constructs that are already in the field. Have pandemic-relevant ones that relate to your question. Use existing resources. Reach out to collaborators. Try to work on these things together. Plan now for budget cuts. It not might happen, it will happen. And have a paragraph written for your project officer when she emails you and says, I'm so sorry that you were below our our guideline. And you can write back within a matter of minutes and say, we have a plan where we can continue our goals at a 20% cost of what it was before and send that back. And here's one that maybe I would like to end on at least for myself, and it hasn't come up yet, but I think it's been implicit. I do not think we should concede an inch on what our expectations are for quality. That this is not an excuse to do bad research. This is not a the dog ate my homework kind of scenario. What this is, is we have the same expectations for reliability, for validity, for representativeness, for moving our science forward. We're just now operating under a new set of rules. I guess my exit point is take everything that we talked about and don't for one moment think that there's a lower expectation on how we move forward
0: as a science. And it might just take the involvement of larger constellations of expertise to be able to maintain that level of quality. And that's what we need to do. There's a very famous line from Osensei, who was a founder of Aikido, and he was asked about how it is that he seems to never lose his balance. And his response was, I lose my balance all the time. My skill is in how I regain my balance. And we have lost our balance right now. And the good news is, is that we have a lot of people around us to help regain that balance. And what we have tried to do here is to start that conversation, not really provide all of the answers, but point to the existence of things that we already know that can help us to regain our balance and maybe help to find a way forward together.
1: I think that's a great exit point. In the immortal words of Joe Exotic,
0: I'm not going to apologize for my language or anything else. This is just the way I talk to get a point across. (laughs) (laughs)
1: so thank you everyone know that you are not alone in this we are in this together and we really truly can draw on the wisdom of crowds
0: thanks for everything
1: take care everybody bye-bye thank you everyone be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform you use to fill your newly available time and please leave us a review also, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We are at Quantitudepod and visit our website, quantitudethepodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. You have been listening to Quantitude, the real reason Dr. Fauci was caught rubbing his forehead at the presidential press conference. Today's episode is brought to you by your local government, who would like to remind you of five simple rules that you are expected to follow during the pandemic. One, you cannot leave the house for any reason, unless you have to, and then you can. Two, all stores and restaurants are to be closed indefinitely, except for those that are open. Three, anyone who wants a test can get one, although no tests are currently available now or in the foreseeable future. Four, the virus has no effect on children, with the minor exception of those children who it affects. And five, Remember this simple fact. You will have many symptoms if you are sick, but you can also get sick without having any symptoms. You can have many symptoms without being sick, and you can be highly contagious if you do not have any symptoms. But you will not be contagious, even if you have symptoms but are not sick. Seriously, people, this is not that hard to understand. This is most definitely not NPR.